welcome the legendary Tom Bilyeu to the I Love Success podcast. What's up, dude? Thank you for having me, man. Of course. You know, I'm honored to have you on. I've actually been in your house, watched one of your shows, and you've been kind of an inspiration for me building my brand uh, trying to, you know, give as much as I can to the world. So first off, thanks for that. And, you know, Tom, I want to go deep. I want to do this heart to heart. And I, I want to start off by talking about the tough shit that we sometimes have a hard time talking about. So would you mind sharing what was the worst day on your life and how did that profoundly change you as a human being? Wow, that's interesting. Um, I don't have a ready-made answer for the worst day of my life, partly because of the way that I think about self-narrative. Um, I think it, so admittedly, I'm sort of grasping here, but the, the day that I felt my lowest um, was the day it was a good and bad day. So for those that know my story, this started, I wanted to be a filmmaker, graduated, had no idea how to get into the industry, met these two entrepreneurs. And they said, look, you're coming to the world with your hand out. If you want to control the art, you have to control the resources to so come with us and get rich. So I joined them. We started working in business and flash forward. It's probably about six and a half years in um, that I realized I, I'm just so profoundly miserable. Um, and so I finally went in and quit. And it ends up being one of the most important days of my life and ends up being the thing that gives birth to Quest Nutrition. But on that day, um, not only did I feel dead inside from having worked there, I felt like I was um, leaving my brothers high and dry. And I felt really shitty about that. It felt like failure. And so I couldn't have imagined that feeling like I had hit a breaking point would end up being retold in my own mind is like the beginning of like the the best run of my life. Um, but at the time, it just felt bad, man. It just felt really gnarly. It felt like I was abandoning them. It felt like I was giving up on myself. It, it, it was just all around horrible. Um, but it ended up being critically important because they ended up admitting that they felt the same, that they weren't having fun anymore. And, you know, that we probably should um, rethink the business. We ended up out of that launching quest. So of course it ends up being this huge win. Uh, but at the time, woof, it, it really felt gnarly. Yeah. And, and Tom, why do you think that there's so many people out there that are, you know, feeling the same thing, you know, they're successful, quote unquote, having a, a good career, but they're, they're fucking empty inside, you know, why do you think that is so common and how do we, what do we do to help people, you know, tap into their why? Ooh, that is a big question, my friend. Uh, so let's try to streamline this. I'm going to give you uh, a part of the answer and then you push in which direction you want to go. Yeah. Um, a big part of the reason that people end up feeling sort of lost, hopeless, frustrated, scared, alone, um, is they don't understand the physics of the human condition. So most people end up there because they have a fixed mindset. So they believe that their talent and intelligence are fixed traits. and they have so much self-esteem caught up in being good, right, smart, um, that life becomes this constant, you're not good enough story. And because they don't think they can change, it just really starts to weigh them down, which is why you see a lot of optimism when people are young. And then that sort of gets crushed out of them over time because they don't recognize the truth of the human condition, which is that you're designed to learn and grow and get better. And so you have to invest this huge amount of time and energy into getting better. But it starts with, telling yourself a different story and about who you are 
and building your self narrative uh, in terms of pride around something anti fragile, to use Nassim Taleb's phrase. So the only thing that I've found is to shift your identity and your pride from being good and right and smart and worthy to being the learner. Now, if people did that one thing and recognized that they can get better over time, I think you would find the number of people that sort of get stuck in that death loop would be much, much smaller. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I just listened to, you know, uh, This is Water by David Foster Wallace this morning. And I mean, that speech is deep, right? And kind of talking about like how how most of us don't tap into our own mind and use it as a force of of nature. And I know you you were so angry with this when you saw all these amazing people that couldn't tap into that. And that's why I love what, what, what you're doing. And, and I mean, my life has profoundly changed for the last four or five years since I started meeting game changers. And I mean, even before that, I was a world medalist. So I was, had a strong mindset. But I mean, when I see kids are out there that don't have that and they're around people with a, with a, like a fixed mindset. So what do you do if you are in an inner city, like your parents, they don't believe in, in the growth mindset and they're telling you just, you know, just focus on what's in front of you. Like, how do we, how do we help those kids? Because those are the kids that, that makes me happy, you know? That, that's a, a two-part answer. So part number one is what we're doing right now, which is what I call direct-to-camera. It, it is just hitting the logical centers of the brain, telling people, think like this, act like this. Um, and I find that that hits about 2% of the world. Uh, not a big number. If you're like me and you're obsessed with scale, that's a, a very distressing number. Um, it is precisely the reason people say you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. It is, you know, people that have learned something, something hard won, and they want to share it with somebody else. And, and I think it's probably born of parents trying to, you know, offer something to their kids and they see just how incredibly difficult it is. Um, that people have to, you know, make their own mistakes. So when you're attacking the logical or attacking the problem through the logical centers of the brain, um, you will deeply impact some people, which is, of course, why you keep doing this, why I keep doing this. Uh, but to get the 98%, you really do have to bypass the logic and go to emotion. And that emotion could be through music. It could be um, through story. Uh, and that's where I'm approaching the problem. So most people think of me as the straight-to-camera guy. But I think of myself, I'm trying to build the next Disney Studios. Yeah. Um, so when I, I don't want to be the next Tony Robbins, I want to be the next Walt Disney. And the reason I want to be the next Walt Disney is because of what you're saying. So the very thing that animates me is that right now, the number one predictor of your future success is the zip code that you grow up in. And that's just not okay for me. So when I think about how you solve that problem, it really is about making sure nobody gets to the age of 15. So there's this thing called the age of imprinting from 11 to 15, where people really build their belief system, their value system, all that. Um, so in that age of imprinting, making sure that they get imprinted with a growth mindset um, on a limbic emotional level. Um, so that's the, the one-two punch, the logical and then the emotional. I guess you're right. And I mean, one thing that I really want to dig deep with you, because you met so many people and you, you put so much thought into this, is your definition of, of success, because I'm, I'm really trying to redefine the concept of success. And I love, I remember hearing you saying this, that like how you feel about yourself when you're with yourself. So can you just talk about how did you, like, was that an epiphany? How did you come up with that? And like, why, why is that? Why do you think that's the definition of success for you? So 
it becomes, if you run a thought experiment, it will become really apparent really fast what actually matters. And the thought experiment is this. I want you to imagine for a second, like really think about this, that you are just a brain in a jar and that all the experience that you're having right now isn't real. And there's nothing, literally nothing you could do to prove that that isn't true because your brain is um, merely processing electrical and chemical signals. So if I could manipulate those electrical and chemical signals, then I could manipulate your perception of reality. And since perception is reality, at least for you, um, all that matters is, is how you perceive it. And so I heard, um, there's a guy named David Eagleman. He's a neuroscientist. And he said something that, that really made this come home for me. And he said, uh, think about this. Your brain is encased in total darkness. And yet you think you see light, but light actually never reaches your brain. Photons fall on the photoreceptors in your eye and are translated into electrical and chemical signals that are then sent to your brain. And same with sound, right? The air is agitated and the sound waves reach the eardrum and your eardrum translates that into electrical and chemical signals that is then interpreted by your brain. But in reality, you actually are a brain in a vat. And it just so happens that you have these things that take input and then translate that into these chemical and electrical signals. And they create a virtual reality for you. So it's like, fuck, man, that's crazy. So I, you know, whether we're in the matrix or not is quite ir irrelevant because each of us has created the matrix inside our skull. And once you realize that, that all of these things that you perceive as being external to you are actually a representation of some sort of phenomena out there, but it's a representation in your mind. And all you actually have to go on is that representation. So then I was like, well, what if that representation isn't 100% accurate? And so it begins to put you in this realm of all that really matters is what's going on inside my mind. And then, you know, hearing about billionaires that commit suicide, it's like, well, it's not accolades, it's not money. So if it isn't those things, like what leads somebody to commit suicide? It's neurochemistry, right? Like depression is an easy one to point at. So depression is from a... a phenomenological perspective from just like what you feel, what you are going through um, from, you know, actual feeling and sensation is so negative and so deeply unpleasant that at some point you say, I would just rather not exist. And the way that I've always likened it is if you believe that you would never feel good again, what would be the point of living? There actually wouldn't be. Now it's a false belief, but if you believe that you are forever going to feel badly, then now you're in, in real trouble. And the thing that most colors people's feelings are perceptions of themselves. So if we know that the only thing that matters is feelings and the, the biggest driver by a landslide of how you feel is how you feel about yourself, then literally just sort of mathematically, the only thing that matters is how you feel about yourself. Now, the reason I say when you're by yourself is because people can prop you up, someone could big you up, you know, give you some hype, and for a minute you feel good, uh, but then you're taking a warm shower and you feel like shit again. It's like, that's not very useful. So you want to get to the point where you're, you aren't swayed easily by other people's perception of you. You want to get to the point where you believe in what you do, you believe in your motivations, and that you're showing up every day and playing all out and going super hard um, and making the most of your life. And if you believe that, then even if other people are saying you know bad things about you, I won't say that you won't feel that because you will. We're a social creature, so it matters to us what other people think, but you become much more stable because you, for instance, if somebody were to tell me that I'm dumb, it would sting, but it doesn't send me into a death spiral 
because my belief is that I'm the learner. So I don't value myself at, at a neurochemical level um, because I don't value myself for being smart. I don't get that punishment neurochemically from thinking I'm dumb. Instead, it triggers a habit loop trigger of, hey, remember, you're the learner. So yes, it's stung to feel like, oh man, I messed it up or that person thinks I'm stupid, but it reminds me that I can learn and I can get better at that. And so I just simply ask one question. Do I want to put the time and the energy to getting good at that thing? And if I do, then great, go get good at it. Don't waste time feeling bad that I'm currently not good at it. And if I don't want to put time and energy, then really don't waste time feeling badly about it because I don't want to get better at it anyway. So it's absolutely fine that I'm not good at it. So that person's you know, take on me while it stung briefly, it, it actually doesn't matter. And so when you have those defenses, you, you hit this equilibrium and you can feel good about yourself um, even when external stimuli would make an average person feel badly. That, that is so great. I mean, this whole self-worth thing is, I think it's so many people out there that they are connected. Like if I'm good, and I, I knew this as an athlete for many years, you know, in the beginning when I won, I was worthy, right? And, and then I kind of realized, you know, I'm still worthy because the people that are applauding me and saying, hey, Peter, you're great. And when, then when I lose, they're not even there. They don't really care about me. I need to start caring about myself. But I learned that through, you know, through losing in front of a lot of people. And how, how, do, how do we, like, for, do you have to learn by pain or can you learn other ways as well? You don't have to, but I find that most people do. So, you know, it, it, going back to just what are the physics of being a human? One of them is that pain lights up areas in the brain that have to do with focus and memory. So you're more likely to focus on something that went poorly that you felt badly about. You know, I think a lot of times people um, think that negative emotions are meant to be done away with, but they're really not. Negative emotions, they have a purpose, right? Or evolution would have gotten rid of them. So if you know that that pain has a purpose and that purpose is focus and memory, then it's like, well, let me focus on this thing that went wrong. The key though is in that moment, you have to be honest with yourself about what went wrong. If you try to blame other people, which is what I see happening in society now, it's like, man, you want to talk about something I've, I've said for years, not, not in this term, but basically pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And dude, I, that's exactly what I did in my own life. I stopped whining. I stopped telling myself that I was stupid. And I just started working harder and my life turned around. It was like, oh shit, this actually works. And so holding myself to a high standard, pulling myself up by my bootstraps, it worked. And so I thought, oh, I just need to tell other people this. They're going to love it. They're going to be so excited to hear this from me. Um, and I did it. And now like the world has flipped and it's like, miss me with that. Pick yourself up by your bootstrap shit. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, this is the reality of how the world works. This is physics, man. There's nothing below this. This isn't an opinion. This, this is the nature of improvement. So I'm like, what are you talking about? It, it, fighting is such the perfect example. It's like, dude, you can tell somebody, people should, should be impressed with your skill set the way that it is. And you shouldn't have to go train that hard. Like th this is the advice people give. You shouldn't have to work that hard to achieve or be successful. And dude, if people told that to a fighter and then they go in the ring with somebody who's grinding it the fuck out every day, holds themselves to a crazy standard, pushes themselves hard, they walk in that ring, dude, they, they are going to get permanently injured. And that is the same advice we're now giving people that are stepping into the world, safe spaces, trigger warnings and shit like that. I'm like, are you out of your mind? That is making you soft and weak. Instead say, yo, the world is going to come at you with some crazy good arguments and you better know how to like defeat those arguments or be willing to learn from that person, adopt that new knowledge, always be open-minded, what I call 
Um, strong convictions loosely held. I got that from somebody else. I don't remember who. I didn't think of it, but it's the right idea. And it's like you believe in something, you have the you know the certainty to move forward, but you're always open to something new. That is what we should be teaching people because life is a fight, whether we want it to be or not. And if you go into that fight unprepared, you're going to get your ass handed to you. And so I just do not understand people that are approaching the world in a way that where you want to divorce yourself from the truth of the human condition. It's just crazy to me. Yeah. And I mean, it goes back to what, what, what we talked about in the beginning. My life is an exact reflection of my own choices. And when you really fucking embed that, I, I started doing that a couple of years ago. And I mean, before, sometimes when I competed, you know, the, the tatami where you compete, they were slippery. The referees were not on my side and like a whole bunch of bullshit. But once you start taking, you know, accountability for fucking everything, it's, it's pretty amazing. Can we just talk about that? Because I know people will say, oh, yeah, I mean, I can take accountability for most stuff, but, you know, I can't do it for everything or, you know, this is not really my fault, you know, that I grew up here or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. So I'll introduce people to a phrase. And now what? So cool. It's not your fault that you grew up where you grew up. It's actually true. It's not your fault that you had shitty parents. Um, that's true. The most sinister thing about excuses is that they are valid. But now what? But now what? But uh, it's like going into fighting. Okay. Hey, maybe you're um, too short. Maybe you don't have as much fast twitch muscle fiber as the next person. Maybe your parents weren't championship fighters. Uh, maybe they, um, you know, they smoked while they were pregnant. Uh, who the fuck knows? Like you were born, you didn't uh, get to decide what those circumstances are. But now what? I mean, really, now what? Like, do you want to be a championship fighter or not? So it's like, if you want to be a championship fighter, then the things you're going to have to do are, are pre-mandated. It's like, once you decide, I think this Russell Wilson said this, either Russell Wilson um, or, oh God, I'm blanking on his trainer's name. Anyway, um, Paul Malwad, I believe. They, you get to a point where your goal is going to make demands on you because there are, there are just physics to be encountered, right? So um, if you want to be the greatest fighter in your weight class, then you actually have to be able to win in a fight against the other fighters in your weight class. It's like, and they're going to be out training. So you actually have to be better. So it's like your skill set has to be superior to their skill set. And that just is what it is. And so, yeah, I, I don't understand. Um, no, I do understand. Here's why people make excuses. There is a thing called the psychological immune system. The psychological immune system has a job, and that job is to make sure that you don't get crushed by, crushed by depression, so that you don't think so little of yourself that you can't get out of bed. Cool. I'm glad that it exists. The problem is that when you overuse that, then you make everything somebody else's fault. You don't take the responsibility on yourself, and when you don't take the responsibility on yourself, you give up control. So if you say, well, I'll never be a championship fighter because I'm too short. I don't have enough fast twitch fiber. I didn't have the right parents. I don't have enough money. Then what happens? You don't become a championship fighter. But so often we see people overcome the most absurd obstacles. There was a guy um, named Muggsy Bogues who played in the NBA. There was another guy named Spud Webb. One of them was five. I can't remember who was shorter, but one of them was five seven, and the other was five three. Okay, and they played in the NBA where the average height is like six six. So they, they had every right to make excuses and say, I'll never play in the NBA, right? Nobody would have gone, oh, no, of course you can. In fact, I'm sure the number of people that told them it will never happen for you was overwhelming. But if you don't 
do the things that you need to do to win, you won't win, right? That, that is self-evident on its face. So even though your excuses are valid, if you make them, you will not achieve your goals. So don't make them and see how far you can go. Love that. And I mean, how do we meet people, you know, that are down on their luck, so to speak now with empathy and compassion, maybe they see you and wow, I want to build myself up just like Tom did from, from a lazy dude who like with habits created, you know, this amazing life. But right now, you know, I, I'm basically like you, I'm just laying on my, on my carpet and don't know what, what to do, man. Well, the good news is they're coming up in the air of the internet. Uh, if they if they are hearing that question be asked and me utter this answer, they have already won. They are already doing the things they need to do. So you have to change your belief system. You have to change your self-narrative. You have to surround yourself with people and ideas that empower you. Um, and empowerment simply means that your actions are the actions required to improve. And on a long enough timeline, if you focus on a skill set that has value and you just keep improving, improving, improving then ultimately you're able to close your eyes, imagine a world better than this one, open your eyes and make that world come true. That, that is my definition of power. So you can grow more powerful by um, encountering these ideas and then bringing them to bear on your own actions. Um, it's all about how you act. So if the person is willing to learn and then take action, they, they can make their life unrecognizable. And I will give them a phrase that they can repeat in their head um, that may help. So um, one, uh, if you go to my website for free, you can download the 25 beliefs that I think anybody needs to, to you know, make dramatic change in their life. Um, but a phrase that I'll give people to repeat is, you can't make a racehorse out of a pig, but you can make a really fast pig. So that phrase has been tremendously helpful. You may not ever be LeBron James, fair, but you can get 10 times, 100 times better at basketball than you are today. And if you pick Anything that, that matters, any, and we'll just take money as an easy example. If you pick anything that monetizes and you build a skill set that's 10 times better than where you are now, imagine making 10 times the money that you're making now. Now, I will hypothesize you can get 100 times better at anything, right? The difference between a 13-year-old just beginning to play baseball and A-Rod is, in my mind, about 100x. So if we know that you can get 100 times better, now, where, wherever you are, so a rod times 100 is very different than me times 100 in baseball. But again, while I may not be able to make myself into a racehorse, I can become a really fast pig. And your life financially, your life romantically, your life, anything, if it's improved even tenfold, will be unrecognizable. So I just want people, your science seems to point to you're 50% hardwired and 50% malleable. If you focus on the 50% that's malleable and you tenfold your life, you will be unrecognizable. You will be able to have success that most people can only dream of, even if you weren't born with some just radical amount of natural talent in that area. Yeah. But how, how do you measure improvement? How do you do that in your life, Tom? I, I wrote a book about goal settings and I'm super excited about this. And I know you, you, you even said like, it's, have so big goals, have crazy big goals, but how do you measure improvement and, and, and make that help you in your everyday life uh, to build up yourself? You have to pick a metric that matters to you. Um, that metric could be as soft as number of days that I feel good about myself. And then you would keep a journal and you would give yourself a score. And let's say every day that on a scale of one to 10, every day that's above a seven is a day that I say, yeah, I felt good about myself today. And it's always going to be ebbs and flows throughout the day. But um, and you just mark it off. It could be, I want to make $150,000 a year. Cool. I mean, that metric is real fucking easy. 
And so I would, in that case, if I'm working for somebody else, I would go in and say, what does a person who makes $150,000 a year as of today need to do? What role do they need to be in? What skill set do they need to have? And then you go about acquiring that skill set. And odds are you don't go from, you know, $75,000 to $150,000 in a year, but there's maybe three or four steps in between that. And you just go hard for each job, always asking what it takes so you get them to commit ahead of time to what that is. And now you can start checking that off. Do I have that skill set? Yes. Um, do I have that job? Yes. Am I on the right path? Yes. You know, and so you have to have a goal that's very specific, very specific, you need to have a date, and then you need a metric by which you're judging your progress. So normally people don't fall down at the metric stage. They fall down at they don't have a goal stage. Their goal is super vague. Make more money. That's fucking vague. Get better. That's vague. Um, you need something that is very specific, that has a how much, that has a buy when. Um, it's it's got to be just crushingly specific. I agree with you. It has to be specific. And when I look back at the goals that I've written, it's sometimes crazy how you get what you ask for, right? And and sometimes I'm like, why didn't I ask for more, right? And I know, like, uh, I think you were, I, I think you did this with when you had employees at Quest, right? You used to ask them the genie in a bottle question, right? What would you do if you could have anything? And at the end of the day, they said money and they said a million dollars. But I mean, you can never get more than you ask for, right? Dude, the magic genie question, that that ended up changing the course of my life. More aptly, it ended up giving me a new why for the filmmaking. So when I realized that they should have, if money was what they wanted, they should have asked for an impossibly large amount of money. And then I realized they were all asking for a million dollars because to them, that was an impossibly large amount of money. But in LA, you can't even buy a house for a million dollars. And so I was like, what the fuck is going on? And so I just realized, yeah, you, you get what you ask for. If to you, it is unrealistic to strive for a million dollars so much so that a magic genie shows up that will give you anything you want, grant any wish. You ask for a million dollars. Uh, that, that is a frame of reference problem. That, that is getting people to understand how malleable they really are, how much more they could improve their skill set, and that they could get so good, like you, um, you know, mentioned at the top of this, if it doesn't violate the laws of physics, then it is possible. Um, and that they could do so much more, but they had to believe that it was possible. Yeah, I mean, no pressure and no diamonds, right? And one thing that I want to ask you, because there's so, like, I know you wake up super early. When do you wake up? Four? 4.30? Yeah, so that that's usually the latest. Today I was up at two forty-five, so it it varies. I'd sleep without an alarm. I don't wake up on purpose. I just go to bed at nine, and I wake up at whatever time I wake up. Wow, uh, yeah, that that's a that's a fucking badass. Uh, do you do you sleep well? Like, or is or do you wake up because your because your why is so strong, or because I have that issue sometimes? You know, I just wake up because I want to get to work. You know, I want to start building my mission, and then I'm like, wow, what is that? that's a big part of it so there there are days for the most part i sleep well um i get six to seven hours a night almost every night um some nights i miss that five is my minimum if i've gotten less than five hours i won't get out of bed i will lay in bed for hours trying to fall back asleep because i absolutely despise being tired and i don't think that people um function optimally when they're tired so this is not a heroic thing like i don't the thing that I want people to be impressed by that I do is two things. One, I go to bed at 9 p.m. And two, I don't set an alarm. So if you go to bed at 9 p.m. and don't set an alarm and you wake up at seven in the morning, that's awesome. Get the sleep you need. Like this is a game of longevity. This is a game of 
um, high level cognition. And if you're not getting sleep, you are, you are really doing yourself a disservice. So it just so happens that one, I'm now in my mid forties. So it's like, I just sleep less than I used to. Um, and then two, I am excited. So, you know, I'm amped to get up out of bed and attack the day. I love what I work on. So getting up and knowing that, oh, I get to go, like, I'm huge on problem solving. I really enjoy the act of problem solving. So getting to get up and work on a problem or learn, like right now, I'm learning the language of anime, as weird as that sounds. So at 2.45, I come down, I'm watching anime, you know, and I'm learning something. Uh, It goes back to, you know, my desire to build the next uh, Disney studio. So there's so much excitement in what I'm trying to accomplish, that that's definitely part of it. I love that. And, and, and that's a lesson. Don't, don't search for that. Like do like you say, get the fuck to work, you know, be legendary, do like be really good at something. It can't be denied. Uh, and I have two more questions for you and then I'm going to let you go. Uh, we're on a tight schedule here for you today, Tom. And I really appreciate your time. I've been, I've been trying to get a hold of you for a very long time. So I'm super grateful. Uh, did we so, get it in time? Is this, is this the 200th episode or did we miss it? We missed it. Dave Asprey was 200. This is 201. Yeah, close. That, no, nobody's fault but my own. You, you did, you did try. So, uh, I don't know how many I've done, but you know, uh, but this is this is the thing that I I love with you know. I, I said I I need to talk to you. That's I knew that in my mind, and I said I'm not gonna give up. And thanks to Chris, we made it happen. There was like stars align sometimes, you know. So I'm. I, I want people to hear a different story. Peter was crazy persistent. And he kept at it. He knew what he wanted. He went after it and he made it happen. Um, that is to be commended. And honestly, it only happened because I went and watched your content and I was like, all right, I resonate with this dude. I dig his style. Um, you're a fighter, but you don't come across as like an alpha dickhead. Uh, so I was, I was very impressed. So uh, kudos to you, man. Thanks, brother. Uh, happiness. Is happiness and success the same thing? Can they go hand in hand? And like, how, how do we find that balance? Well, that all comes down to how you define success. So success by worldly standards have absolutely nothing to do with happiness. And I will also say that happiness, I wouldn't strive for happiness. So fulfillment is far more interesting. So a bowl of ice cream will make you happy. I'm, I'm just talking from a neurochemistry perspective. As you eat that, you're going to get so much dopamine flooding your system and it will feel so good. Even the buildup, like if you like go to Cold Stone and you're waiting in line and they're doing the mix-ins and you're like, oh my God, it's going to be amazing. And then you're sitting there and you're eating it. And you know, like for me, if I'm eating ice cream, I'm with my wife. We always do it as a shared thing and we're probably watching something cool. And so it's like, I'm watching something awesome. I'm with my favorite person. I'm eating the ice cream. I knew all day I was going to eat it. So it's like, yeah, but that shit is so short-lived. And you can be knocked off that happiness by a million things two seconds later. Fulfillment, on the other hand, like I said, is born of doing hard things in service of yourself and other people. It's meaning, it's purpose. It's like going really hard to do rad shit. That, even in those moments where you fail, it's like you're still that person, right? So you can imagine losing a fight sucks. But as you walk away, you go, I know me, man. I'm going to show up. I'm going to put in this work. I'm going to learn from this defeat. I'm going to come back. I'm going to be better than ever. And it's like some part of you also knows, even when I get to the point where I can't fight anymore and I'm just, I'm past that part of my career, I'm going to be able to look back and say, I fucking left it all out there. I was unafraid. I got into that ring or or I was afraid, but I was courageous and I faced that fear and I got in the ring and I fought. And I know I'm going to get to feel good about that for the rest of my life. That's fulfillment. It's not transient the way that happiness is. And even in the down moment, you still have that sense of self. So 
I would say that's critically important. So the easiest way to sum up the difference between success and fulfillment, or I'll let people call it happiness here for the sake of this question, is don't worry about winning a championship. Worry about being capable of a championship performance. So for instance, let's say that you never won any major tournaments in your life and you, could, you couldn't put that moniker, right? And all you could say is, I'm a martial artist. You couldn't say that, you know, I won all this stuff. But you knew that you gave it your everything. There's no question. Some part of you would be like, oh man, it'd be great marketing if I could say this. But like this, I am a Inc. 500 entrepreneur, but I came in second place. And it's like, now, what do I do? Do I feel badly about that because I didn't get the number one spot? Or do I say, yo, the person that I became in order to build a business that grew by 57,000% in three years in manufacturing, employees, equipment, square footage, all of it, is that what I should be impressed about? Or should my story be about I came in second instead of first? And my thing is, look, I don't even think about it. So the fact is, I have developed a set of skills. And that set of skills lets me navigate my life incredibly powerfully. So I care deeply about that set of skills. The second or first as an entrepreneur, that's just marketing. Boom. Last question. I know you got to go. After people leave this show, and thank you guys for still being here with us, what is the first thing they should do to get a little bit closer to their goal, their dream? Write it down. Write your goal down. I promise you, if I sat with each and every one of you, you think your goal is specific and it is not. So here is what 99.99999% of the people that I encounter, here's what their goal sounds like. Tom, don't worry. I got this. I've heard you. I know it needs to be specific. So here it is. I want to win a gold medal. Boom. And I'm like, for the love of God, a gold medal in what? The Olympics? Yes. Amazing. Summer or winter? Summer. Fantastic. Swimming or tennis? Swimming backstroke, freestyle medley, breaststroke, where are we at? Because you have to get down to the point where you know what Olympics you want to compete in, what sport you want to compete in, so you know how you have to train. Remember, this is all a question of what do you have to learn? What is the skill set that you have to build? And if your goal is not hyper-specific, how much, by when, just down to the nubbins, then you won't know what to do today to reach your goal. Because it is all about a series of actions that either move you towards your goal or away from your goal. And that's it. And most people live in a world where the goals are so vague, they feel like they're doing something and they're just treading water. Welcome Dave Asprey to the show. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Super excited. It's so funny, you know, when I... When you start reach, researching people, I figured out and learned that your wife is Swedish and she's Yet a doctor. Yet the bra. I'm Swedish. My wife is actually a Swedish and a doctor as well from Stockholm. So it's funny what you learn when you you know dig deep into the human lives of yeah. us. Uh, so I want to I want to dig deep today and kind of honor your journey. So can we just kind of go back and and talk heart to heart? When you were like obese, overweight, you had the man boobs, you were kind of smart uh, doing your thing. Like, What was it that, what was that moment that you decided I need to change something in my life? You get sort of frustrated when you're you're fat 
everyone who's fat knows it. You don't need a scale. Uh, you just need either your pants or a mirror. <laughs> and so you don't like it. You say, oh, it's just a few pounds and you can explain it away. Uh, but then you get to a certain point where like, okay, this is more than a few pounds, but you can still explain it away because you've got a job, you got stuff to do, you're already in a relationship, whatever. But then what they don't tell you about being overweight like that is that when you have all that extra fat on your body, it's a sign of inflammation. It's, it's actually that the food and air that you're eating are not combining to make energy for your willpower and for your immune system to work and for your brain to work. They're actually getting shunted off somewhere else because something's broken biologically. And that leak of power and energy makes you tired. It makes you cranky. It makes you more reactive. And I got to the point where I was having cognitive dysfunction and I got tired of being in pain all the time. And sure, I, I could lose 25 pounds and I could gain it back with 35 pounds. And you could just do it over and over and over. And the, the whole time you're suffering, like you're hungry. And one of the things for me that stood out a lot was I was at a, a Carl's Jr., a fast food restaurant. I haven't eaten fast food in many God, decades. But I was maybe 24, 23, something like that. And I look around, I'm like, wait a minute. I have gone to the gym six days a week, an hour and a half a day, half weights, half cardio. Didn't matter if I was sick, didn't matter if I only slept two hours, I was gonna go to the gym. And I'd been on a low fat, low calorie diet. And I looked around at all my friends. I'm eating the chicken salad with no dressing because it has fat in it and no chicken because it has too many calories. And I was eating like lettuce. <laughs> my friends are eating double Western bacon cheeseburgers, you know, with cheese and bacon and all the good stuff everywhere. And I just thought, wait, I work out more than all my friends. I eat less than all my friends. I'm still a 46 inch waist. I'm fat. How is this, how is this even possible? Uh, and at that point, I just realized it's probably not a moral failing because I'm actually doing the work. It's, well, maybe I am eating too much lettuce, but I don't think so. It must be something else. And I started looking at things that might work because doing what was supposed to work didn't work. And so many times uh, when I've also interviewed you know, 700 and, and something uh, game changers on Bulletproof Radio, my podcast, quite often they got to a point where, well, I did what was supposed to work. It didn't work. And, and it's measuring results, seeing what works. And so that was one of the many things that led to the creation of biohacking where it's like, look, you can measure it. If it doesn't work, try something else and try the stuff that's most commonly believed to work, like, oh, lowering your cholesterol, it doesn't do anything for you. In fact, it's probably bad for you, <laughs> depending on what, what you're doing there. So then you start looking at the data and you look at your own data and say, wow, my brain has the response time of a 20-year-old and mine actually does. <laughs> my arteries are the age of a 24-year-old based on pulse wave velocity. And there's all these things you can do. And you know, if people are going to tell me that, oh, putting butter in your coffee could kill you, like I've been doing it for 10 plus years and I'm healthier now than I ever have been and things work better. And I can tell you the 16 different reasons it works. And some of that's even based on university research that I funded now about basic water chemistry that no one knew about. So look, if it seems to work and you can measure that it works, you can keep doing it. It's okay. And that's, that was the mindset I took. And uh, I'm happy that I haven't had to buy fat pants ever in at least 10 years. Yeah, I'm happy too. And can we just talk about like, I love the data, the biohacking and all of that, what, what I try to, you know, focus a lot on is the mind, like what was going on in your mind during that time, you know, cause you're in that age, you, you want to date, you want to do stuff. And like, 
there's there's something missing, right? And how did you work on the confidence and how did that build up once you did find a, a system that worked for you? Uh, that uh, That's a funny question. If if I really look at back on it, I had so much cognitive dysfunction uh, as a as a kid that uh, I would have qualified to be on the Asperger's syndrome, and I never was formally tested back when my brain was like that. But let's see, my grandmother's a PhD nuclear engineer, my grandfather's a PhD chemist, and everyone on one side of the family is Asperger's. <laughs> so lots of engineers. So what I did is what any good Silicon Valley Asperger like engineer would do. I went to a networking group, a business networking group. I stood in the corner in my 46 inch uh, waist pants and watched what people did <laughs> until I could learn like the, the socialization and networking skills that were required. Because what I figured out was, hey, um, if I'm going to go make good stuff, uh, if I can't communicate it, then it won't work. And I'd already seen this in Silicon Valley. You can make great stuff, but if no one knows that you made it, you still failed. So for me, part of it was to gain confidence was just watching things and then practicing, you know, in a Thursday night networking group on the Stanford campus. I didn't go to Stanford, but they had, you know, a, a business thing for the, the birth of the Silicon Valley.com web era people. We could go hang out. So that was part of it. Um, but then there's still that really mean voice in your head and uh, newsflash. <laughs> if you're in your 20s, you probably have it. It's normal. And it's, it's a mean little like psychotic voice. And what I did that probably made the most difference was I started working on the physical side of things. And, and this is missing from most of the personal development literature. It, it's mostly in my book called Headstrong, where I talk about the dynamics of this. Your willpower is based on electrons, which is based on air and food. So if you're doing a bad job biologically of making electrons, you will do a bad job of managing the voice in your head. So if you want to reprogram that thing, you want to do any personal development work, if you can make more electrons, personal development work gets easier, whether you're beginning or advanced. And the easiest and simplest hack, and now I'm going to sound like I'm selling something, I'm Peter, whether or not you or anyone listening buys Bulletproof or not, it won't change my life. So I have no, no meaningful personal motive in doing this. Bulletproof coffee is a very quick way to change the amount of electrons available in your body because of one of the ingredients called, it's a certain subtype of MCT oil called brain octane. Look, it makes your brain work better <laughs> because it gives you more electrons, at least if it gives you more electrons. That's, that's the intent behind that, that in the beverage. So you do that and all of a sudden, oh, I have a little bit more energy and you can use that then to meditate or to do deep breathing exercises. In my case, I'll go to South America, do ayahuasca with a shaman back when I could show up and they'd say, um, you're white. Uh, That's only for local people. Like no one ever wants to do that. You'll throw up. Why would you do that? And I say, yeah, I recognize that I'm white, but I've, uh, you know, I'd like to try this. And now it's a tourist industry. So ayahuasca has become kind of a hip thing, even though it's uh, rigorous and probably um, a lot of people do it without appropriate spiritual guidance. So I did that. And then I went to Tibet to learn meditation from the masters. I said, I'm going to do these things after I got enough of my biology working. A lot of people say, oh, I'm, I'm fat, I'm tired, I have a mean voice in my head and I yell at people around me and I have bad relationships and whatever the voice in your head says. And so I'm going to go work on those. <laughs> Newsflash, work on your energy first because you have more energy. You can suddenly say, okay, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'll be nice to my boss when he yells at me instead of you know, flying off the handle because you know where that's going to go. So self-control came about from having more energy. Uh, and in my case, the biggest progress on just turning off the voice in my head has come from advanced neurofeedback to the point I started a company in that space. It's called 40 Years of Zen where people come and spend five days 
of doing intensive neurofeedback work with hardware that we designed that you glue electrodes to your head. And then it actually lets you see when the voice in your head is rearing itself. And you could say, oh, that's actually not me. That's my automated systems. And you find out, Peter, that all of the negative things that you think and say and do are the result of your stupid body trying to keep you from being in danger because it doesn't know you're in charge. In fact, it doesn't even believe you're in charge. You know, uh, Dave, you know what pisses me off? You know, I, I was an elite athlete for many years. Uh, I was an eight-time national champion in karate and a world medalist. And wow. one thing that pisses me off, I didn't know any of this. My coaches didn't know any of this. It's not taught. This, this is like original. This, like I wanted, I wanted to know this like from my coach. Like why is this not bigger in, you know, especially in, uh, in high peak performance? Well, here's why, Peter. There's two ways you can, uh, you can accelerate your growth. One is you can run away from something, right? And the other one is you can run towards something. <laughs> and it's more work to run away from something, but it works exceptionally well. So the beginning of my career, look, I, I'm going to tell you how well this works. I made $6 million when I was 26. Okay, I lost when I was 28, oops. <laughs> but I had a brief period of wealth there, that was, which was really nice and helped to fund some of my self-experiments. But I was deaf, just deathly afraid of failure, right? So if you will do everything in, in your power to run away from failure, and the reason people are afraid of failure is it's really straightforward. It's all biological and it's programmatic and it's, it's based on rules. I'm a computer science guy. So it's based on an algorithm for life. And I'll tell you what the whole algorithm is in a minute. But the most important thing is don't die. And, and your body knows without you thinking about it that if you're not a part of the tribe, no one will feed you and the tigers and lions will eat you and you'll die, right? So that's why we're afraid of failure. So you, you don't think about this. It's built in. It's automatic. It's outside the brain. It's in subcellular components throughout the body that roll their behavior up into what you feel. And so, God, failure is impossible. I will beat myself up to you know, be the best in the world. And the whole time you'll be telling yourself, I'm not good enough. I'm a bad person. If I don't do this, no one's going to love me. Like, you know, I'll never go out on a date and blah, 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 blah. Well, the other thing you could do is you could say, I don't care about any of that stuff. <laughs> like, I want to do this because I want to be the best in the world. Like, I want to make a meaningful impact. I want to inspire people. I want to do what I want to do. And it's actually way less work to do that because what they haven't taught you as a professional athlete and what they don't teach anywhere is that the voice in your head costs you electrons. So if you can shut up the voice in your head, the energy that went into that goes somewhere and it goes into either folding proteins properly so you can live longer or it goes into your willpower so you can persevere and you can be more resilient and you can be stronger, faster, smarter, better, or you can just be more giving, more kind, you know, more calm. Whatever your goal is, it's free energy that's just wasted with these little eddies in your mind that don't even do anything. You want to know the algorithm for life? Yeah, you know, I'm trying. What I'm trying to do here is to redefine success. So any any help I can get, uh, I truly appreciate it. All right. And this came to me after I wrote uh, Headstrong. This was my book. I went really deep on mitochondria in the brain. So this is a book on how do you keep your brain working better than it's supposed to. And it hit the New York Times monthly bestseller list between Homo Deus and Sapiens, along with the Secret Life or the Hidden Life of Trees. And I was like, wow, I never imagined as an author. Um, that one of my books would hit you know, the big list, uh, which was a, a serious honor. And there's huge numbers of references, but the mindset of, okay, let's look at how our, our, 
bodies make energy. And let's pay attention to these tiny ancient bacteria. And here's the, the sad history of how we got to be who we are. A couple billion years ago, there's some bacteria floating around and there's some other cells floating around, probably some kind of parasite. We're not really sure what. Well, the two met. And we like to say, oh, we uh, were the cell and these bacteria, we harnessed them to be our mobile power plants and they're called mitochondria. Now, the story from the mitochondria's perspective is, hey, we were floating around, we found these dumb mobile Petri dishes, we moved right in, we took over and we're still in charge. (laughs) You have this conflicting basis for what you are because you're you're actually every cell, most cells in your body are stuck together where you have um, tens to hundreds to even thousands of these ancient bacteria studded within a cell. And you think about that, do bacteria have an algorithm to stay alive? They have to. Everything alive does and everything shares the same algorithm. And what an algorithm is, is just a set of instructions you follow in order to solve a problem. And the problem is how do I make sure the species survives? So number one, whether you're a cactus, a zebra, a slime mold, it does not matter. Number one, run away from, kill, or hide from scary things. And this is really important because if you die right now, it's game over. So you will put 10 times more energy behind things you're afraid of. That's why you remember them better. That's why you respond to them better. And that's why fear of failure leads to procrastination and leads you to do all sorts of things that you wish you hadn't done later. Number two, okay, nothing's trying to eat me right now. What should I do? Well, so if the first one is fear, the second one is food because famine has killed every species throughout its history when there's not enough food available. So you eat everything. And this is why when you're fat and you're not making enough energy, the voice in your head screams really loud, eat the donut, eat the donut, eat the donut, until you're just like, I run out of willpower, I'm gonna eat the donut, right? It's not that you're a bad person. Willpower is powered by electrons. You didn't eat the donut, you're not storing, you're storing electrons instead of using them, et cetera, et cetera. You're gonna, you're gonna lose. The donut will win every single time. And it's not because you're a bad person, it's because you're a person. So. Fear and then food. So run away from kill or hide, eat everything. Okay, third thing, it's also an F word. You know what it is? Yeah, I think so. What is it? <laughs> Maybe F U C K. I was thinking fertility, but hey, wherever you want to go, Peter. I'm, I'm gonna... <laughs> By the way, that's what everyone says. So, okay, I nothing's trying to kill me. My stomach is full, I think I'll get some. Why? Because if you don't reproduce the species, it's the end of life, right? And that's your body beliefs. Now, have you ever done something you're ashamed of that wasn't from one of those three things? No. Well, there you go. None of those are actually you. Those are automated defense systems from ancient bacteria that are the puppet masters in your body. It also turns out that those ancient mitochondria are the first line environmental sensors and they make hormones. They don't just make electrons. They're not just power plants. They're sensors that exquisitely, trillions of them throughout the body, actually quadrillions if I'm remembering my research right, throughout the body are sensing the environment all the time and changing you in response to the environment based on their stupid algorithm. And because they're dumb little bacteria, they don't understand. Actually, that's not a threat. That's my teacher. (laughs) Right? They don't get that. The teacher looks like something that might have been a threat when you were two. They'll fire off a little threat response. It'll cost you energy. So part of becoming a highly functioning human being is having really good pattern matching. So before you become aware of something, it runs through a distributed set of patterns throughout your body. 
right? And each time it's filtering out information. Oh, I don't need to know that. Don't need to know that. I should respond to that. I shouldn't respond to that. Oh, I think I'm injured. And it's a local belief of an injury. And funny, you can hack all of that stuff. So the definition of biohacking I came up with was the art and science of changing the environment around you and inside of you so they have full control of your own biology. You change the inputs. So if the dumb little cells in your body are worried about something or their timing system is off, you can change the timing system with the color of light that goes in, with the temperature, by what you eat, when you eat, by deep breaths, um, all kinds of things. And then the environment within you is you turn off the pattern matching. All of us learn when we're young, certain things are threats that aren't actually threats. And then we still have a threat response. Waste energy, makes you old, makes you think you're a jerk, puts bad voices in your head, all that stuff. And there's the sum of knowledge of humanity. At this point, I've interviewed Nobel Prize winners. People have discovered fields, actually multiple fields in medicine and psychology and therapy. Uh, and it all agrees, whether it's ancient Tibetan stuff, ancient Chinese stuff, or the most recent transpersonal psychology stuff, what you end up with is there's a lot going on in there that's useless and can be reprogrammed. So my algorithm from the 40 Years of Zen uh, training program after having done a lot of work around the planet was, okay, I'm going to hook a computer up to my head or to, to clients' heads. And we're going to show you when the voice in your head is lying to you. So you're going to sit down, you're going to do a specific type of meditation, and you're going to think about something. When you do, your brainwaves are going to change and they're going to change for the negative. You know, there you go. You are responding with a threat response to something you didn't know about. How are you going to turn off a threat response? You could cognitively catch it and say, oh, I know. This is what they teach you in a lot of psychology. Oh, I know that I'm feeling fear. I'm just going to accept that I'm having a feeling, right? And then I'm going to go do it anyway. Thumbs up. Okay, that's a win. That's much higher level of enlightenment than most people. Wouldn't it be better though, if you could say, oh, you know what? I know that I have a threat response or just a reaction. Now I know because I can see it in my brain. I didn't actually feel very much because it was subtle. So rather than learning to feel it and then learning to accept it and let it flow through me so that I can you know, make the next block, the next move, or I can do the next big thing, or I can proceed in spite of the fear. What if you turned off the pattern matching, you turned off the switch that led to the fear in the first place because it was an inappropriate fear that didn't match reality? And that's what I've done for myself over the course of months. Most people just go for five days. But that's one of the reasons I started uh, the 40 Years of Zen program is that I can... Uh, go in and I've at this point the voice in my head doesn't do things like that anymore because I found the vast majority of things that were even micro triggers to make my brain get off of what it was doing uh, and I said oh what does that come from and the algorithm there it's really funny um, you go through and this is part of our, our reset process that we do we put the brain in a very specific state that uh, we built the hardware and software to do it so you're sitting there, you learn the skill. Okay, now I'm feeling this thing. And then I'm going to go through and I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to find something I'm grateful for about this horrible thing I'm worried about. And I've had people come through with the biggest fears, like fully, highly functional, wealthy, successful. I run companies. I'm a big actor. I'm a sports star. People like that, they'll come through. And it always comes down to, you know, I haven't thought about this in years, but in first grade, little Johnny was mean to me right? And he punched me. And I don't know why it just popped into my head, but when I think about it, my brainwaves go nuts. You're like, well, there you go. So little Johnny taught your body that something wasn't safe and your stupid body believed it for 50 years. And maybe now there's a way to go back and erase that. So you can still remember little Johnny if you want to, but you don't have any emotions associated with it. So dropping emotions that aren't serving you 
that come up unbidden is a massive way to free yourself. The hard thing that I, you know, what I'm really trying to do is I know there's someone out there listening to this show right now that are, you know, they have all these dreams like you had once upon a time and still have, but they're stuck. You know, they're stuck in a job. Maybe they're alone. They they feel they don't have that energy that you're talking about to take the next step. Where do you start? uh, (laughs) If you don't know where to start and just know that you got to change something in your life. Well, there, there's two ways to go about it. One of them is just hit rock bottom. <laughs> We're like, I am so miserable, I don't know what to do. In fact, this is where a lot of people end up going on a personal development path. They're like, I just got divorced. I just lost all my money. Uh, by the way, I've done both of those. Um, I, I just you know, got really, really sick. Um, I, I lost a loved one. I got into a severe depression or, or whatever the thing is. And you're, you're just like, anything I do from here is better. That is not the preferred way of doing it, but sometimes that's what it takes to make you just finally get up and do it. Uh, the other thing you can do is you can actually say, I'm going to commit to a process of personal development, right? And then you say, all right, what's within my financial means? What's within my time means? And who around will teach me? Because it just happens that there are lots of people who've gone down this path before you. In fact, there are people who've done it for thousands of years and written it down. And you can start doing yoga. You can start doing breathing exercises. And I've written about breathing, um, geez, since my very first book, um, The Art of Living Exercises, uh, Pranayama. So in other words, just pick one. Right and sure, do some neurofeedback. Do the some of the biohacking stuff. Monitor your sleep. Say this mindset that is a core part of the bulletproof lifestyle. It's like I'm going to do something to make myself better every day. It doesn't mean you have to go do 15 pull-ups or you know go run a marathon every day. One simple thing, and it can be really simple. I read three pages of a book on meditation or a book on you know stoicism or whatever you wanted to do. You just have to check that box. And that's the same mindset that the Navy SEALs have, you know, be a little bit better. So instead of committing to a specific goal, so then it's binary, oh, I'm going to fail. I'm never going to eat a carb again, by the way, that's a stupid goal. But if you you get into that, then you're going to fail and then you're going to fail and eat the entire cake. But if your goal is I'm going to commit to a process that I follow every day that allows for some deviations, but I'm still in the process. Fine, you ate some cake today. You did something else. You meditated for 20 minutes. So I checked the box of doing something to make myself better every day, even if I screwed up on something else. And that is is something you can get behind. Um, The easiest thing, depending on your age as well, is probably to focus on what's your life's purpose. (laughs) And uh, we have ways of doing that. So for people who don't know their life's purpose, it's very common when you're young to find someone who's doing something cool and say, I'll do what that person's doing. And you can join a team, right? And you can follow the leader of the team on doing that. And that's a really healthy way uh, to figure out how to move in a certain direction. But the odds are you're going to feel like that's your life's purpose, but it may not be your life's purpose. So borrowing someone else's life's purpose is a bad idea. It's got to be your life purpose. So learn from others, ask for help, ask for mentorship, but then commit to time journaling, time alone. And what we used to do is we'd say, hey, son, you're 12 or 13. Guess what? We're going to drop you off in the middle of nowhere with a knife and a loincloth. And if you're lucky, a little flint, um, when you know what your life's purpose is, come back. And we have a vision, come back. Uh, and I've done the vision quest in a cave all by myself in the desert for four days and stuff like that. Uh, and it can be really valuable. But if you're not spending time with just yourself, going really deep on journeying, breathing, 
meditating. Um, neurofeedback will definitely do that for you, uh, at least the altered states kind of neurofeedback. Uh, or talking with people who know your elders from whatever tradition you come from. There's a reason we have rabbis and priests and shamans and really spiritual advanced energy worker therapists and people like that. They're all over the place. They'll help you tune in on what it is. And it doesn't have to be necessarily what you love, but like, why do you think you're here? And once you get that, you can then spread your wings and it becomes one of those things instead of running away from fear, you're like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And when you do what you're supposed to be doing, it is effortless. It doesn't feel like work. It doesn't take very much energy. It's like there's something pushing you in that direction instead of you pushing against something. And that's where to get started. Know why you're here and what, you're, what you want to be doing. Love that. Dave, uh, I know you got to go. You have family time. I only have two more questions and then I'll let you go. So I want you to imagine you are... 179, turning 180 soon. You're sitting in a rocking chair overlooking maybe the ocean or a mountain or whatever you love and kind of contemplating on your life. What do you want to see and have happen in order to say, wow, this was a good run? Uh, I think I should be mountain biking with my great, great, great grandkids. Because <laughs> um, remember, it's at least 180, and fuck the rocking chair, if I can just say that uh, real straightforward. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Okay, cool. Last question, and that is, we're all about sharing tools, journeys, but at the end of the day, I want the people that are spending time with us to take action in their own life, to create something that they're proud of, to create their own success, their own happiness. What's the first thing they should do right after this show? I would suggest that you focus on sleep of all the things you can do. If you can get a higher return on investment for the time you spend to sleep, you're going to sleep anyway. You might as well sleep really, really well. That would be one of the easiest things because if you do that right, you'll make more electrons the next day. Your brain will work better. Your emotional stuff will work better. Your spiritual side can be better. It's a, a very high return on activity. Activity. I don't mean sleep more. I mean sleep better. And I'm going to suggest... Go to daveasprey.com slash sleep challenge uh, because I didn't plan that sleep answer, by the way. I didn't know I was going to mention this, but I'm putting on a sleep challenge that starts in a few days. So people can, can go there and uh, sign up and then I will teach you over the course of 14 days everything I know about sleep hacking. And most of the stuff you read online says how to hack your sleep. It's derivative of some of my original posts on how, what's really going on with your sleep. Not just the science of it, but what do you do to go to sleep faster, to stay asleep all night long, to wake up feeling better because I was such a crappy sleeper. So if you can do that one thing tonight, make the bedroom dark, make sure that you black out your window, put foil up in your window if you have to, but make it so when you wake up in the morning, you can't see anything and watch what happens to your quality of sleep. Unplug all the little blinky lights and crap like that. Put your phone in airplane mode, turn off your Wi-Fi, see what happens. And that alone, if you do that every night, can make you a better human being. Welcome, Leon, to the I Love Success podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful uh, to have you here, or you're having me. I'm in your home, and uh, I wanted to do something special for my 150th episode and, and kind of share uh, a special journey. So the first thing I just want to do, I want to go back. I know a lot of times you had lunch in the library when you were a kid by yourself, I want you for a second just to kind of go back to that moment and share what you, what you felt at that time. 
That's a good question. I mean, look, you know, it was uh, not a particularly pleasant time. You know, you go to school, you expect to have friends, you expect to, you know, to be a safe place. And for for years, I would, I wouldn't even have the courage to walk down to the dining hall. I felt so ashamed. I don't know why I felt ashamed, but I felt so ashamed. I felt so um, vulnerable that even to walk into the dining room was too much for me. So that's why I hid away from the world by uh, going into the library and eating lunch by myself. I think for me, I, like, I was suffering as well. I mean, I even remember I didn't have any friends uh, at, at some point and I took the courage to go to like the school dance or whatever it was. And everybody was asking who you're here with, who are you here with? And I, I forced myself to lie and say, I, first of all, I lied to my parents, I'm going with some friends. Then I forced myself to lie to all my friends. Yeah, they're, they're right there. And because I felt so lonely and I didn't want to show that I was hurting. Mm. Um, I guess I didn't want to worry my parents, but um, I experienced something very similar to what you're saying. Once you start sharing your pain, it feels much better. But how do we get that courage? Sometimes the pain forces us to find that courage, which is what happened to me. Um, and I would say another way is to read. You know, you you read books, you watch documentaries, you read, you watch movies about courageous people, and you kind of through osmosis find that courage. And if you can't find the courage, try your best not to beat yourself up. You know, try yourself your best not to be like, oh my God, I, I'm, I'm living this terrible life. I don't have the courage to do this. It's okay. It'll come when it's meant to come. Yeah. And, and how did you become a broker? Like, was that your childhood dream or did it just happen? Um, my, my childhood dream was to be like Pele, yeah. <laughs> which didn't happen. Um, uh, I, it was a family business. So it was kind of like, it was supposed to happen. You know, and I didn't want it to happen, but I wasn't courageous enough yeah. to say no. And it took having to spend years doing it and suffering to turn around and say, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. And, and how, do you remember that day or was it a, was it a, a lot of small instances yeah. that turned to this like uh, moment that you had to change or was it that specific moment? It was small instances, you know, it was like... There was a tipping point, but you had to get to that tipping point. And the tipping point was I watched a movie called The Motorcycle Diaries. I watched it last night because I wanted to be in your mode. I watched it before, but I watched it last night as well. Yeah, it's It's an amazing movie. uh, Amazing movie, yeah. Yeah, so it's a a romanticized version of Che Guevara. Yeah. Traveling around South America relying on kindness. And there was something about that movie that was like, okay, I know I'm watching a movie. But if this guy can feel this way and can quit his job, which he did, he was supposed to be a doctor, and he said to his father, I'm sorry, I'm not staying in Buenos Aires, I'm leaving. If he can do that, then why can't I? And it was that kind of tipping point moment where it was like, okay, it's done. And how was that conversation to have with your family? I mean, they thought I was insane. I mean, they loved me. But they thought, like, what are you talking about? This is like a great job. You have a great life here. Why would you do that? But they didn't understand. And uh, it's okay. You know, you don't have to always 
have full approval from your family or from anyone for that matter. If you feel in your heart of hearts that you're doing the right thing, it's done. Do it. I want to talk about what happens after that because there's so many people in the world, they have a dream or they have so much pain and they decide to change. But then after day three, let's say you start a business or a podcast or start writing a book, after day three, when it doesn't go that well, it's not that fun anymore. Like how was that experience from deciding to change to actually start traveling? Because now you're known as the kindest guy you have a track record, but this is many years in the making. Can we just talk about those first moments when no one knew you? You you didn't even know yourself, right? So Winston Churchill has a famous quote that says, never, never, never give up. And you have a book. Can I show everyone your book? Yeah. This is his book, which you probably already know about. (laughs) But basically, the goal book, how to achieve your dreams and create a better life. And in it, I just was reading it, and you said something... There's a quote here from Napoleon Hill. A goal is a dream with a deadline. Yeah? And although I didn't have a deadline, I had a dream. My deadline was that I wasn't going to fail. That was a deadline. And I knew that I was just going to keep on going. And I I just, nothing was going to stop me. You know, it doesn't mean there weren't moments where I thought it wouldn't happen. There were. And there were still other things going on that may not happen. Who knows? But you have to have this like inner fire to know that you're going to go towards a specific goal and you're not going to stop. Nothing is going to stop you. I don't care what happens. You are just going to keep on going. And if you get to a point where you're on the floor and you're in a puddle of tears and you think it's over, that's okay. When you're ready to get back up and, and start running, get back up and start running. It's fine. What was your first trip after deciding to start traveling? Well, my first trip was actually around America. I did, uh, I walked, well, hitchhiked from Times Square to the Hollywood sign. I'd done some other trips before that, but the tipping point trip. So I'd been to Nepal, I'd been to Peru, I'd done some journeys around Europe, all leading to the tipping point, which was uh, going around America, quitting my job and relying on the kindness of strangers. And what have you learned about human connection during these travels? Because I I love traveling. I haven't been to a a hundred countries, but I've been to 30 and I want to see the world. And my favorite thing is to connect with people. So what have you learned about human connection? I've learned that we're all the same, ultimately. Doesn't matter what color you are. Doesn't matter what religion you are. Doesn't matter how much money you have, how little money you have. At base, our hearts beat the same way with the same blood being pumped through our system and with the same um, dreams and, and hopes, you know, just kind of being making us human, you know? And once you can connect to someone, let's say, for example, do you like soccer? Yeah. Okay, which team? Uh, I love uh, Juventus. Juventus? Yeah. Out. Okay. <laughs> uh, England, I love Liverpool. Are you, you a Liverpool yeah, fan? Yeah, I'm a Liverpool fan. Okay. So that's it. Yeah. Immediately, yeah. me and you are connected. Yeah. We could talk about Liverpool all day. Yeah. So all it took was me asking you one question to connect. And that's how you do it. Yeah. What I feel today, and uh, I watched um, 
your show as well. One thing that this guy, I don't remember his name, but he, he was in Alaska and he said, we're so connected that we are disconnected. Mm. Like, can we just talk about that? Uh, the other day I was in the gym in the morning and there's this guy, we meet every day at the same time in the gym. I want to connect with him, but it's always with his headphones. And to my uh, excuse, or to my, I have my on too. So like, I was just thinking about that and like leading up to this podcast, like how do I connect with people in this day and age? So let's, let's talk about the guy with the headphones. Yeah. First of all, there are some people that you can't connect with. They don't want to connect with you. So you just have to accept that. Secondly, the next time that you're with the guy with the headphones, yeah. ask him, so, so what song are you listening to? You know, and the chances are he'll say something that, that, you, that you know and that you, that you, you may not like it, but you know the song and that's the way in to connect with that guy. You know, and you start connecting through whatever it takes to connect. It sometimes only takes just one small thing. And what's your opinion about, I was walking the other day and, and a dog was barking really loud towards me and I got a little bit frightened, even though I'm a fighter. And the owner said, he doesn't like strangers. And I just thought about that for a second. I, we are strangers, but we are connecting. Like we, we're all strangers. We want to see it that, that way. Like how do we shift that mindset where we're afraid of connecting, which many people are? It goes back to what I just said. Everyone is the same. Yeah. Everyone just wants to be seen. If you can connect to someone, not from here, but from here, yeah. it's done. Like if we were to do this um, conversation from here, it wouldn't be a very good conversation. But clearly, we're doing it from a lower place. We're doing it from our hearts. And therefore, the connection is easier to sustain and easier to spark. Yeah. One thing that I thought a lot about myself, I'm, the country I'm from originally is a very poor country, right? And I see so much joy in the people. Mm. And they don't have nothing. And when, when I watched your show, we just emphasized that. Like I've been sitting at dinners and they, they don't, they literally have one piece of bread and they'll share it with me. And uh, it just got more and more emphasized in your show. Why do you think the people that have the least give the most? Or is that even true? Yeah, no, I mean, on many levels, I think it is true. I've experienced that a lot. That doesn't mean that people with a lot don't give, they do. Yeah. But some, most you know, there are quite a few people with a lot that don't give. Yeah. And I think the people with, with little, they have a sense of community. They need each other. So their everyday life is connecting with each other because it's a need. The more money you have, the less you need other people. So you don't need to connect. Leon, you circumvented, that's such a cool world, by the way, to circumvent something. Whatever you circumvent is pretty cool. But you circumvented the world. And can we just talk a little bit about like, what were the moments that you will never forget? Probably so many, but do you have some specific moment that you would never forget? Have you seen season one? Yeah. Okay, so season one, uh, for those who don't know, I took a vintage yellow motorbike yes. with a sidecar called Kindness One, yeah. and I drove from LA all the way around the world back to LA, uh, relying on kindness. And I would ask people, I would have no money, no food, no gas, no place to stay, nothing. And I would rely entirely on the kindness of strangers. Yeah. 
And I was in Pittsburgh and I was asking people to stay in their houses and they said no, which is fine, I get it. So I went to this park and I was walking around and I saw this guy and I went up to him, started talking to him, you know, connecting. And I said to him, can I stay in your house tonight? And he, he says, look, I'm really sorry, but I'm homeless. I'm like, okay. I just asked a homeless man to stay in his house. Um, I'm about to walk off, but he does something really quite beautiful. And he says, do you know what? If you want, you can stay with me tonight. I'll feed you. I'll protect you. And I'll give you some clothes. And that is, that is exactly what happened. I ended up sleeping on the streets of Pittsburgh for one night with Tony, uh, who was a, an, an amazing man. You know, he had nothing. He had one bag which he hid in the bushes so people didn't steal it. And I, I stayed the night with him, and it was just a life changing experience because he taught me that kindness is free. It doesn't matter what you have, you get to choose how you want to behave, you get to choose how you want to show up. And he also taught me that kindness, that true wealth is not in our wallets, but it's in our hearts. And there was a perfect individual who just epitomized all of that. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I saw that show and it seems like he's, how is he doing now? It's good. So at the end of each episode, as you know, yeah. we give an unsuspecting Good Samaritan a life-changing gift. Yeah. And I was able to put him up in an apartment and send him back to school. He wanted to be a chef. So we did, you know, so he's not homeless anymore. Uh, he's not working as a chef, but he is working. Um, and it's, it's beautiful. I speak to him every day. In fact, I spoke to him today. How does that feel for, for you to be able to be part of, of such an incredible movement of, of helping people? How does it feel when you help someone? Amazing. Yeah. Well, that's exactly Great. how it feels. It's like yeah. a beautiful gift yeah. to be able to be of service. It's actually magic. I'm going to do it because I did the first uh, uh, challenge yesterday and I wrote down, see if I can find it, what kindness is for me. And uh, kindness, what I wrote down is that kindness is magic. It is. That's really what I feel. And uh, to be honest, I stole it from a t-shirt I, I saw on a, in a yoga studio. <laughs> But I think it's magical, right? Because it doesn't cost you anything, mm. but it gives you so much. How do we, like, I feel like a lot of people are afraid of being kind because they are afraid to be taken advantage of. Like, what do you want to say to those people that live in that kind of scarcity mindset? I would tell them the story of Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was a man of service. Muhammad Ali was a man of love. Muhammad Ali was a kind man. Would you mess with Muhammad Ali? No. <laughs> no. So the point is you can be vulnerable and you can be strong. You can be vulnerable and you can have boundaries. So I understand people's fear of being crushed with their kindness. But if you go out in the world like this without protection, then maybe you will be crushed. But Muhammad Ali went out into the world like this, but he had protection and that was his strength. Yeah. Have you healed your pain now, Leon? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, look, I've healed a lot of it. Yeah. Have I healed all of it? No, I haven't. It's pain, specifically when you suffer trauma, yeah. it doesn't just go away like that. It takes time to fix, to heal, to 
to recover from. But I would say mostly, but there are clearly moments where I have not. Yeah. And do you, do, you, do you think traveling was the, the, that helped you heal or was it the human connect? Like how? It was both. Yeah. Traveling is the school of life. You go out into the world and you connect. You go out into the world and you learn things that you could never learn at home. You go out into the world and let's say the news tells you that, I, I'm, I'm exaggerating yeah. for, to, to make a point, that all Muslims are terrorists. Yeah. yeah. You go to Egypt and they are unbelievably lovely. You go to Oman and they invite you into their homes. You know, you go to Palestine and they're kind. Yes, there are bad people everywhere. But travel bring, breaks down barriers, brings down walls. Yeah. So don't, go to, don't, don't, don't be like, oh my God, I heard Leon speak yeah. on this podcast and he told me that everyone was kind, so I'm going to go to a war-torn area. Don't be silly. Yeah. yeah, be clever. But not everyone is bad by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and one thing that I, like my... One of my closest friends' dad passed away just two or three days ago. And I was just talking to him today and um, only 63 years old, worked all his life. And now when he retires, this happens. And um, made me think a lot about my own family, you know, especially when you're far away and your friends and also about life. And today when I spoke with, with Denny, he told me like goals is important, but family is more important. And uh, he's a guy, he was a world medalist, wrestler, he's always been very goal oriented. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start rethinking a little bit of my life. Like, how do you see that? How important is it to have dreams and goals and how important is it to just kind of like focus on family or how do you, does that tie in? Well, look, some of your dreams may be linked to your family. Some of your dreams may be to have a good connection with your family. Yeah. Some of your dreams may be materialistic, whatever. Yeah. It depends on what your goals are. Yeah. But to have a good relationship with your family is clearly an important part of life. Yeah, I agree. But at the same time, how come a lot of people neglect it without even wanting to neglect it because they're chasing something that they don't even know that they really want? Because when you turn on the television, it tells you that to be cool, you need to have a big house. To be cool, you need to have a cool car. And in order to have a cool car, you need to make money. And in order to make money, you need to spend hours sitting behind a desk or doing whatever you do. And when you do that, you're not with your family. Yeah. And like, what do you want to say to people that are in, in a situation in their life now? They, they might be sitting at their desk, just being kind of miserable, kind of where you were and... Uh, just they want to change, but they don't know how and they don't have the courage right now. Like, how do you do that? Think about being on your deathbed at 91 years old and looking back in your life and saying, oh my God, I didn't live. And now I'm about to die. That's not going to be a happy place. And then think about being on your deathbed at 91 and having lived 50 lives. 60 lives you're going to be like okay one of my dreams is that if God wills it and I end up dying in my bed when I'm 90 to be like it's done it's good I lived many lives I don't need to keep going and most people can never say that you know 
what do you what do you want to do now you've seen the world you've been to so many many countries you have this kind of amazing life mission where do you see this going in the next five ten years look just to continue doing what i'm doing continue building the platform continue inspiring people continue touching people's lives in a beautiful way and also continuing to learn myself because when i guide someone or when i touch someone's life beautifully it's really a win-win because i learn about myself like i give a lot of school speeches and i go into these schools and i give these speeches and hopefully they get something out of it i think they do but i get something out of it too and it's like a it's like a win-win I teach and help uh, kids in karate and there's nothing more rewarding and, and as a matter of fact my father was is my sensei and my coach and he have taught so many kids and almost every week someone will call him uh, or send him a letter just kind of talk and say thank you not for teaching me how to punch and kick but how to but teach me about life mm. to have a good life and and that's amazing and I love what what you're doing. Uh, so I want to go into a little bit more about like what do you do to feel good about yourself? Do you have any specific routines that you use every day that is helpful? Yeah, I mean I meditate every day. Um, I try my best to be in gratitude every day. It doesn't always work, but when I do get into gratitude, that energy of gratitude, everything changes. Like it's easy to be like, oh, my life is terrible. This is happening. That is happening. And then the moment you start saying to yourself, well, what are you grateful for? It's like, oh, okay, I'm grateful for this, 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 and this, and everything shifts. It's like an energetic dam bursts, and everything works out. I mean, it may not stay like that ten minutes later, but in that moment, everything is is in a beautiful way. It does, and I I actually thought about one thing. Um, When you said that, I read uh, I read a couple of Paulo Coelho's books, and in one of the books, he was talking about like when you feel uh, bad, look up to the sky because your problem is right here, like right in your face. But once you look up and realize, like this is just a very small part of the world. Imagine what's going on. Like look up to the sky, and it changes your whole perspective. Mm. 